Hello and welcome to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today we're asking one of the biggest and most baffling questions in football. One that has had even the brightest philosophers completely stumped. How good is Scott McTominay? We'll also be talking about Arsenal, West Ham, Luton, Sheffield United and I'll be shoehorning in a mention of Lincoln City after Super Brennan Johnson gave Tottenham a late winner against Brighton. And joining me, Tom Clark, for all of that, we have London football writer and European football expert Tom Allnut, esteemed football writer and resident Fox expert Alison Rudd, and a former footballer who, during his 15 caps for Scotland's under-21s, never had anyone ponder how good he was. They knew he was absolutely class. Gregor Robertson is here too. You thought I was going to be mean then, didn't you? Yeah, Good, good, good finish to that one. <laughs> good save, good save. Now, we will be heading to the London Stadium very shortly, but first... Last week it was foxes. This week, Alison Rudd is waving a Jilly Cooper novel in my face. Why? Because I was walking down my local high street and a woman who I don't really know but is a friend of a friend of a friend, she stopped me and she said, Oh, I was so impressed. You're a character in a Jilly Cooper novel. And I said, I'm not a character, I'm a real person. Which is a slightly odd response, but that's how I reacted. And she said, No, no, you're in a Jilly Cooper novel. So... I was intrigued, so I bought the latest Chili Cooper, which is called Tackle, which is about the world of football, steamy sex and football. And she uses um, our very own Johnny Northcroft as a consultant on what football journalists are like when they go in mix zones and press conferences and things. So it's perfectly acceptable, I think, for her to use Johnny Northcroft as a... a character, if you like, someone who appears in a press conference, a fictional press conference, and says something. But I was never consulted about the book. And I appear... I'll read it. You see why I'm so cross. I appear in this book. Right? You're actually in this. I was I'm honestly. in this book. I'm in this book. I appear at a press conference just after the big team have won, but their star player isn't there. And so at the press conference, people are saying, you know, what's happened to him? And the chairman announces that um, he's just had his first child on a Saturday morning and he's called him Teddy. And I apparently say in a press conference, (laughs) as Teddy's a Saturday child, called out Alison Rudd from the Sunday Times, he'll have to work hard hard for a living. I mean, I would never say anything so pathetic. I wouldn't quote, you know, Wednesday's child is full of grace. I wouldn't do all that rubbish. And, and, and I was so annoyed. Of all the things the only female sports writer she puts in her novel could say, it's a stupid thing about Saturday's child working hard for a living. I was livid. Sounds very accurate. This, this makes, <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, this makes a lot more sense. Just before we started recording, Alison Rudd told me to F off, which she's never actually done in the entire time I've known her. But now it makes more sense. It's all Jilly Cooper's fault. Well, we're going to have to ask Johnny about this, aren't we, Gregor, oh, on yeah. Thursday when he's in. Um, his starring role in Jilly Cooper's fame and fortune. But anyway, Alison, let's, let's move on. Let's get you talking about more happy things. Let's talk about your actual journalism. Because <laughs> um, you were at the London Stadium for Arsenal against West Ham. An extraordinary result for both sides. And again, as I always like to do on a Monday, quoting you back at you, just, you know, boost, boost that ego a little bit after that knock that Jimmy Cooper <laughs> gave you. You say in your report today, right now the chances of Arsenal capitulating in a thrilling title race appear very slim. Indeed, words I never thought I would hear you say about Mikel Arteta side. Well, that was on Sunday. I mean, on Sunday, everyone felt like that, didn't they? It's oh, you're over you it sleep. now. It's only when you sleep on it, you think, ah, you're, you're doesn't over mean it. anything. You're over it now. I thought you were going to quote my pigeon analogy, but there we go. Uh, How do you know I've not got lined up? Lined up? Uh, okay. Might, might be coming <laughs> later on. Anyway, tell us about the football. God's sake, right, you egomaniac. Right. <laughs> From my point of view, it was slightly unexpected. Arsenal. I've seen Arsenal play badly in London derbies, and I've made the point in the past that it's extra hard for Arsenal to win the title because they have so many London derbies to navigate which 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 is difficult it's an added hurdle so and West Ham had uh, beaten them in the league this season they'd beaten them in the EFL Cup and you felt uh, when the London Stadium believe it or not it can rock when they're up for um, a team like Arsenal visiting it can, I thought this is going to be tricky for Arsenal they might be gliding it a bit after their result against Liverpool uh, West Ham um, doing reasonably well in the league, even though David Moyes gets seems to get consistent stick regardless of where they are in 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 league position terms. So I was expecting it to be at least competitive. Started 
I tend to, when I'm writing on the whistle, I tend to, I always like a little panic attack. I have a panic attack about everything, by the way. You know, what colour including, my Including Jilly Cooper. Jilly Cooper, yeah. my foxes, whatever. But I had, after sort of three or four, three or four minutes in, I'm thinking, oh, this is going to be tricky to write a lot of words about. Nothing's happening. This is going to be quite boring. But I was impressed with how Arsenal, I felt that Arteta had sort of made sure the team were mentally prepared for a feisty performance and they were not going to divert from their pattern. They were going to be very grown up and mature and they were and they started to create uh, really quite beautiful chances. Ariola made some good saves. Um, Leandro Trossard I think is a underrated player who doesn't get enough minutes but he started and was absolutely superb. And then there came a 15 minute spell. Before that 15 minute spell where Arsenal scored four goals, West Ham looked like potentially they could be decent on the break if they applied some intelligence and supported each other slightly better, but they they weren't able to do that. And the, and Arsenal were just I mean, they were they were impressive and I gushed about them in my report, Tom, because they did for those at least for those 15 minutes and probably for for longer they had everything mm. so they were aerially dominant they were tactically dominant they were aesthetically 100% they in, in everything they did physically athletically with their intelligence I mean, they scored their 8,000th league goal and it was a very beautiful curling shot from Trossard. It was, it was, in that moment, you thought they are worthy of being title winners because they were the complete team. Can I just ask something really quickly? Because mm. you, you referenced the piece. The, is the London Derby thing really a thing? It is because I mean, it's teams, always referenced, teams you see, someone's not won in like it. 10 London Derbies or like they have one Derby. Like there's so many of them. Is it really? I'm yeah, they're not graded. London, I'm asking they're you graded. Genuinely. They're graded. So some mean more than others. I I would say the visit of Tottenham to the London Stadium gets the crowd going more than the visit of Arsenal. But they and they Chelsea. do care. Chelsea. They, oh, they really so. don't like Chelsea. Yeah. There. But the, uh, Fulham going there is less of an issue for West Ham. But if you London clubs will raise their game when they face each other, and it's always the smaller club puts in a performance that annoys the bigger club. That's the that's why it matters to someone like Arsenal. Okay. Tottenham have a particular problem because Chelsea, West Ham and Arsenal oh, yeah. are <laughs> 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 number one, right? Yeah. Well, we'll come on to Tottenham later. Tom, when it comes to Arsenal, the team that you cover and report on for us, what how significant is this win and the kind of the statement of it following on from that Liverpool performance? I think it's significant in the sense that it really gives them a, a huge momentum boost at the moment. I think on the back of that Liverpool win, there was a lot of talk about them being overexcited. You know, the celebration kind of discussion obviously came back to the fore. And I actually thought, I don't know, Alisson kind of felt like this, but watching them kind of, they were so in control in this match. And it's why kind of the London derby uh, factor kind of comes into it, because it was the kind of game that if West Ham had wanted to kind of make it a scuffle and make it sort of heated, then that very much would have suited them. But actually for Arsenal to kind of make it a, a technical contest, to make it a battle of skills, I think was always going to was always going to favour them, clearly. So they had the control, they kept it calm, they took the sting out of the match. And actually I thought that was quite impressive, you know. And when you look at teams like City, that's what they do. You know, they don't want to get involved in a, in a, in a, in a fisticuffs. You know, they want to keep everything very under control. And I think there was some validity in, in, in the kind of talk about their celebrations and getting overexcited because we know that last season what kind of was one of their downfalls was that it all just felt like it got very tense and emotional for them and I think actually if, we, if we're talking about Arsenal learning from last season in terms of the kind of the pressure of a title race not only do I think this season they're, they're much better off kind of lingering off the shoulder in that kind of third place but I also think it kind of shows that they have maybe learned something that said I do think there's an asterisk and I think the West Ham are all at sea at the moment and they're in a bit of a state and I think you know we can't say one week that Arsenal need a striker and they can't win the league without without a, a better centre forward and the next week say well look they've beaten West Ham 6-0 you know this team is is ready to win the title I do think there's something in between there and you can beat a bad West Ham team that defended terribly and just for some reason since Christmas just really haven't got going on the Moyes and those issues can still be at play when they're when they're playing against slightly better sides but 
no doubt, I think Arsenal are right in the race. Speaking of David Moyes, who wore the expression of someone who finds the morning crossword so tricky he has to switch to counting pigeons on the back lawn, quote Alison Rudd. There you go, got the pigeons one in. Hope you're happy now. Um, is it the contract thing, do you think? Is that actually a factor? Because I partly look at it and think, well, they've had the Moyes contract thing before. The kind of David Moyes at West Ham has always been an uncertain future. Gregor, they're a club that you've followed a lot last season in particular. Can we, you know, to Tom's point, the idea that they were playing quite well before Christmas, beat Arsenal, of course, and now can suddenly get thumped in fairly embarrassing fashion. Is it the uncertainty around Moyes? I don't think so, no. I think it's losing Paqueta and losing Kudus for a long, a large period of the last, last uh, number of weeks. Um, they're just huge for them. They they produce moments in games that, that won them games or give them a something to hold on to in games. But they wouldn't have necessarily stopped them losing 6-0, though, all the defensive mistakes. No, I mean, I, I don't know. If, I don't think you can explain this. It's it, I've really struggled to think of a time when I've seen a, a team defend so passively. There was a moment in the, early in the game when, when uh, Trossard flicked a header over the bar. Yeah. That was the end of it. But Arsenal progressed through the pitch without a, without a West Ham player getting within even 10 yards of them. And it eventually came to sack out wide, and again, like Emerson was like, you know, <laughs> down, down, as if he was engaging Saka, but he was ten yards away. Saka just cut inside, curled it in. There was no one near Trossard either. It was extraordinary. I, like my jaw was on the floor. No one, and the, and then and then Saka's goal, when he just sort of drifted inside Agard, and like again, in the in the penalty box by this point, and no one's within five or ten yards of him. It was extraordinary, and I don't think. You, I don't know West Ham like West Ham we know West Ham set up to be rigid and to close space and to sit in a kind of defensive you know pretty rigid block but usually when a team advances then that's when they go mm. and close but even when Arsenal went to kind of were probing and finding spaces like in the final third there was no there was no bite there was no no anything you were asking Alison before about London derbies and do they matter why does a 6-0 matter so much. Why does the thrashing matter any more than if they'd lost three nil but played badly? That just heaps the pressure on you. It makes the the mood extremely glum. There, does it so make you feel that much worse as a player if you've lost six versus say three or four? You know, if you've lost three or four against the yeah, team, six in form, is embarrassing. It's like it heads into. Imba- when do we tick into embarrassment territory? Five, <laughs> four, four. Well, yeah, the, the West Ham fans decided it was four. Yeah, because that's when they left. Yeah. Is that when the the mood yeah. changed? Yeah. And speaking of mood, booze for Declan Rice. It's a bit embarrassing, isn't it? Booze for Declan Rice. I thought that I saw most of the so- time. Most of the time, they were very lovely to him. Yeah. And uh, Arteta thanked the West Ham fans for for the respect they showed him. He got he got when he took his first corner. Oh, and suddenly Declan Rice takes everything, doesn't he? Set mm. piece wise, but um, he took his first corner. The fans at that en- end of the pitch were all applauding him very very warmly. I mean, there was nothing. I didn't feel there was anything but love love for him. And when he scored I <laughs> weirdly, I haven't I I've have no relationship to West Ham or Arsenal. I don't have family members who are in love with either club. And yet I felt emotional when he scored because I could in- instantly picture what it must feel like to be a West Ham fan when a player who was so important to your team and gone on to better things and no one, nobody really was angry about him moving to Arsenal it was felt like it was the correct progression for him but there was just something terribly poignant about the elegance of his goal and how and embarrassing how easy it was for him and how influential he'd been in the match and I actually felt emotional like like Munchausen style on behalf of the West Ham fans well, I, I imagine a lot of them weren't angry I, felt, I think they probably felt quite upset I think, Tom, uh, uh, I think Tom's right, though. You can extrapolate a bit too much from, from these games. It wasn't a battering before the first goal went in. And then the first three goals were set pieces, uh, which we've spoken about before, and Arsenal are, dom- are so dominant. And, and then Trossard calls in an absolute beauty, and it's like, whoa. <laughs> Just in the, the game has completely turned and gone for, for West Ham. And from that point, they collapsed. So I It would have been, honestly, it probably would have been eight maybe nine had Arteta not taken off most of his best players really it felt like one of those yeah he hauled off everyone who's getting an eight or nine out of ten on the 67th minute and then and then and that was the message that we don't need to 
go at this so much now. Six nil fine. I think it's interesting what you're saying, Gregor, about the sort of passivity. You know, because I do wonder if, you know, that kind of approach that Moyes has. We know that in these big games he's going to kind of drop off, you know, and let the other team kind of have the ball. And I think there is a fine line. I can imagine in the change room before a match, if you have a manager who says to you, right, we're going to drop deep, frustrate them, play on the counter-attack. You can imagine that in the players' heads, that's a very different thing to a manager who says, right, we're going to press high, go at them from the first whistle, try and steal the ball in their, in their final third. And I wonder if you just can quite easily stray into that, into that thing where I, I'm dropping off, I'm letting them have the ball, and actually you can give them too much space. And I, I, I think West Ham fans even when they were winning in the first half of the season, would say they've seen this performance coming for a long time, you know, because even though they haven't got hammered and humiliated like this, I think H- there've been a hammered, lot of... Hammered, very good. <laughs> <laughs> there have been a lot of performances. I mean, I was there at Bournemouth a few weeks ago and they were really poor, you know, and they, and they drew one all, but there was, there was no, no zip, no, no plan. It felt like they were just relying on moments, you know, and I think it's been like that for a while. And yes, you know, Moyes obviously has done a, a great job in terms, of, in terms of the memories and the moments, but I think week to week, if you're a West Ham fan and you're watching these games, there's not a lot of joy there, you know, and, and sometimes those, those victories are kind of OK because the results justify it. But as soon as the results go, you know, we've seen this so many times with these kind of managers that are slightly more cautious. As soon as the results go, there's nothing left to, to cling on to. I read somewhere this morning that there's seventh bottom in Europe's top five leagues for, for percent, uh, percentage of possession. Don't need to have the ball all the time, Gregor. We know it's not about that. It's about winning. Well, look, games. it's true though. When you you know, if you've got a, it's worked for a lot. Again, this is the this is the conflict in the whole. So, he, so he doesn't get it's a contract worked. for you. Doesn't get a contract. That's for you. not. Come on. No, come on. It's worked for a long a long time, and they've been a success. Moise's time has been a success, but as we keep coming back to, they need something more. It can be a success, and he can still not get a contract. So I'm asking, contract for you? I don't. I, I don't think he will. That's the most important thing. No, whether you should, whether he should or not, that's what I'm asking. Go on. <laughs> I can see arguments both ways. Oh. I'm sitting totally on the fence here. Politicians in. Tom, contract for you? It sounds like not. No, not for me. No, I, I honestly think there are teams in the Premier League now. They're safe. They're not going to get in the top four. And in the middle, there's this kind of bracket of ten, five, ten teams. We're seeing it with Palace as well where they have the money, and let's remember now West Ham have some good players. That's the difference between last season. They've now got Ward-Prowse, they've got Paqueta, they've got Kudus. These are good attacking players under a more kind of progressive coach could do something more exciting than this, you know? And ultimately, if you're going to finish somewhere between 7th and 14th every season, then you want to see at least some, some ambition, some attacking football, some goals, you know? And I think that there are a few teams now in the Premier League that are wrestling with this. What Moyes has always said, like... I need to. I want to see the team evolve. And to be fair, every time you've asked me this question, you've asked it many times. I said, if Moyes wants to keep his job, he has to do that. That, that he has to take that step. He'd be better finishing fourteenth and playing a more exciting kind of brand of football than finishing in like the Conference League spot again by playing this football. That is that is more likely to keep him in the job, and he's not doing it. Still not a yes or no. Alison Rudd, final final view from you, David Moyes, contract or not? I'd, I'd give him one. I just don't know why we why it's necessary to focus on all that's negative about West Ham. When they um, get a set piece, it's always promising. When they counter-attack, they can be as thrilling on the break as anybody when they want to be. Uh, when it clicks, I think they look they do look quite attractive. So I... And, you know, before, before it all went wrong against Arsenal on Sunday, they were drowning out the first chance from the Arsenal fans the West Ham fans were singing you know champions of Europe we know what we are this is something that mattered to them and I you can't know that another manager would have got them that it was hard work actually Gregor knows this better than anyone it's quite a graph to win a European campaign especially especially the Conference League actually it's a graph it's a graph there's travel and it's Thursday nights and it's you've always got that spectre of how far will it impact the team? Will you go into the relegation places? And to juggle all that, I think, means he deserves a little more respect than we're showing him today. Gregor didn't win it. He only reported on it. It wasn't that hard. <laughs> I know, yeah. We paid for his flights and everything. What are you on about? It was, it was etched on his face. It's etched on Gregor's face. The hardship. He wears it well. Didn't get a medal, though. Anyway, moving on to another game that was arguably more thrilling, but with fewer goals. Tottenham Brighton. Looked like a cracker on the highlights, Tom Olnut. It was a really good game, yeah. As I basically thought that it was it was a match between two teams who um, were better at pressing than playing out from the back. 
but they were absolutely determined to play yeah. out from the back, you know? It's two sides who, who just refuse. And, and, you know, this is admirable, where they obviously have this style of play where they just must play out from the goalkeeper. But they also are both, you know, two of the you know best pressing teams in the division, particularly Brighton. You know, they're, they're really, really good at it. You know, the way De Zerbi has them set up. And what happened was they were just repeatedly stealing the ball off each other in the final in the final third, and they had these <clears throat> excuse me, they had these kind of um, series of, of openings. Particularly Tottenham, to be honest, in the first half after Brighton scored, Tottenham just had about half a dozen maybe openings where they would nick the ball off Brighton, have the kind of pitch there. Brighton would be made the wrong side of the ball, but they just didn't quite have that quality in the final third. And and what it kind of came down to really was sort of watching Spurs and to some extent Brighton have these. I wouldn't even say chances, but kind of possibility for chances for 90 minutes, but maybe not have quite the quality in that final third to do it. Richarlison, Werner, um, Kulisevsky even for Spurs and for Brighton, Welbeck, you know, played actually very well, Fatty, but, and then Son comes on the 60th minute and in the 95th with, you know, 10 seconds to go, just delivers that cross, which is absolutely inch perfect with the right pace on it and Johnson couldn't miss. And that is the difference, you know, between these sort of maybe seven out of ten forwards who who will run and 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 create things and occasionally score, and a player like Son and Salah, you know these guys who in the fine margins, you know, with seconds left to play, can can make the difference. Can That's- I ask you what it was, what the mood was like there when Son came on? Because I, I think he's just when I've watched Spurs and he's there, he he lights up. He just it's like someone who walks in the room and you think, oh, I was glad they've come because they're amazing. I I feel like he lights the stadium up. Yeah. But I, I couldn't tell that off the telly. No, absolutely. I mean, you could feel the whole occasion really was about Son's return. You know, he's yeah. only been away five weeks or something. But it was as if he'd been injured for, for a year. You know, okay. it was this kind of like uh, hero's welcome, you know. And that, there was a sense outside the stadium before kickoff, you know, lots of Son flags everywhere. It felt like there were more South Korean fans than there were they, there than there even are normally. And it was funny because even I thought Son would start. I think most people did. But he's, he's, almost him coming on kind of had a had a... A benefit for Spurs because it generated this kind of swell of momentum, you know. And, and even when it was, you know, there was, it was no coincidence, in my opinion, that Postecoglou called Son over in the 60th minute, and the whole stadium kind of rose, you know, in a kind of sense of anticipation. And it was as the fans were still cheering that Spurs moved the ball out to the right. I think it was Kudelski who played the ball through for Saar and who then equalised, you know. And it was in that kind of moment of of uh, of anticipation that Spurs got their equaliser. Now, ironically, in the next 20 minutes after Son came on, Spurs were actually all over the place and Brighton could very easily have won the game. They created two or three really good chances. Probably a draw would have been a fair result. Well, that's what I wanted to ask. It got the impression watching the highlights that the, the sense from the kind of commentary was that this was building towards Tottenham, turning it around type thing. But it sounds like you're saying that it was actually pretty 50-50 and came down to a moment of brilliance from a, a top-level player in Son. Yeah, I mean, I think overall, probably the whole match, I think Spurs probably just about shaded it and probably just about deserved the win. But there was definitely that period after Spurs made a triple substitution where they just lost all their kind of shape and momentum and that's a funny one because in a way that the two substitutions, it was Son and Johnson, both came on, assists, goal scorer for the winner. But actually for 20 minutes or so, it looked like Postacoglu's substitution has just really killed all the momentum that Spurs had. And, and Brighton could have won it in those 20 minutes. You know, they played well. I think they would be really disappointed not to have got a point or even to have won the game. Um, but yeah, Son makes a difference. And, and Spurs are looking good. You know, they've got now Madison back, Benton Kerr back, you know, Son back. They've got, for, I think for the first time under Postacoglu, they've got all their options available. And, and in my opinion, looking good now. I think Benton Kerr's role in that first goal is, is kind of like... It's brilliant, yeah. Yeah, and that sums it up. You know, he's almost like the last man. He's getting the ball and he's trying to turn and beat a player. And then kind of there's a little ricochet. He looked like he was going to lose it. And he kind of bundled his way through, found Kulisewski at wide. And then it was a great through ball. But just like the bravery to get on the ball there and that's that's why it was such a thrilling game two teams that play like that they they take it under pressure particularly players in midfield like real under real danger <laughs> and uh, and they're, at, they're they're asked to do that I remember I've been watching I've watched Brighton games this season where Billy Gilmore has been absolutely berated by Deserbi just because he's not taking the ball on the half turn when there's someone on his shoulder it's like I want you that's what I want you to do if you lose it, you lose it. And that's what both these coaches do, and it's thrilling. Mm. Looking further forward, you mentioned, Tom, there, that forward line. I'm interested to know whether, you know, with Son and Madison and, you know, some of those other players that you maybe outlined, Brennan Johnson, a young player coming through, do they look like they've got enough to build into the team, you know, to the team they want to be for the rest of the season? You know, is the likes of Brennan Johnson, former Lincoln City hero that he is, <laughs> going to be enough 
you know, took his goal very well, but it was ultimately a tap-in, as you say, because of Son's pass. Are players like him and Werner going to be enough for Tottenham, or you know, is it is that going to be a problem where they're relying on Son and Madison still? They're relying on Son and Madison, but I think that's enough. You know, if they've got those two there, then I think it's enough. You know, we saw in that first two or three months of the season when when Son and Madison were playing and they were, you know, really clicking with each other. That's enough for the for the top four or five. I think where Tottenham, the big question is, is is this enough to kind of take the next step you know and you look at the best teams now in the Premier League but also around Europe in a way the most talented players now the ones that make the difference aren't so much the kind of number nines and the strikers it's the it's the wingers you know you, you look at all the best teams they've got brilliant players who play in the sort of left wing and the right wing and they score 20 goals and make assists and and I think Spurs particularly since Son has moved you know increasingly down the middle with Kane going with Kane going to Bayern they now lack a little bit up there, you know, and if they're going to make that next step, I think they need to improve on on those options on Werner. You know, Johnson is a slightly different case. He's young, you know, maybe he's going to explode into the next Gareth Bale. But if they are going to take that next step, I think they need more, more up there. But in terms of this season, I think it's enough. Alison, Brighton, their season, is this kind of game, you know, does it sum up how their season is perhaps progressing very much in games? We love to watch them. They make for brilliant, entertaining football for the neutral but as Tom said, you know, slightly missing that killer instinct in in the forward lines and maybe just falling short of where they want to be. Yeah, I think I just can't help but feel that we've, we're taking Brighton slightly for granted these <laughs> days. And, you know, when we think how far they've come, I think their priority is going to be Europe. I think they're going to... I know that's not a factor now, this minute, but I think as as the season reaches its climax I think that's their priority having watched them in Europe and watched them in the league there's a difference in um, energy levels motivation sense of it all clicking and uh, what want knowing that you can't be everything all the time with relatively limited resources and a team that lost some of its best players I think I think what's probably commendable is that they do and deserve keep trying to play this thrilling stuff even when they haven't quite got the personnel or haven't quite prepared in the right way for it I feel sometimes they push it and they they we'd all excuse them if they had a game where they were quite um well had like one percent of the passivity that West Ham had for example but they don't and it's almost like it almost feels what I don't know if you felt this when you were watching them Tom but it feels like they really don't mind the loss it's the nature of it that would matter more to them which is kind of staggering when you think about it mm. I mean I always when I ever watch Brighton more than almost any other team in the league I think what a difficult team they are to play against you know and it's they're just so well coached and I know De Zerbe gets a lot of praise um, from a lot of a lot of people but it's because when you watch them you almost the system is working much better than the individual parts. You know, you see all the players and you think, well, you know, this is Welbeck and it's Gilmore and, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're good players, but somehow the team looks so dangerous. You know, they pose so many questions, so many problems, you know, and I agree with you. Like every, every time you watch them, it's a clear style of play, not to come back to the, the Moyes question, but this is a team, you know, where you can see that they're playing above themselves. They're brilliant to watch. They might not win every week because they haven't got the kind of talents of the top six teams, maybe, but it's a really clear style of play. Well, if you're a Brighton fan and you think we're overrating you, underappreciating you, you can get in touch with me, tom.clark at thetimes.co.uk. Or maybe you've got a topic idea for the upcoming shows. Stick with us, though. Up next, it's the Great Scott McTominay Debate. Welcome back to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. I'm Tom Clark, and today I'm joined by Tom Allnut, Alison Rudd and Gregor Robertson. Up next, he's Scottish. He's 27. He's played 237 times for Manchester United, scoring 27 goals. He's got nearly 50 caps for Scotland. And we still don't know who, what, why or where a Scott McTominay is. Gregor, I'm coming to you first. Your fellow countryman. What well, is as he? If that makes a difference. What is he? Yeah, but you might, I don't know. It might have something in you, ingrained in you, that you can help us explain it. Because he's fascinating. He scored a brilliant goal to win the game for um, Manchester United against Aston Villa. Timed his run to perfection. Yep. A bullet header. He could have been a strapping centre forward, but no. He's a confused midfielder who's played in defence for Scotland. He's played in every single position in midfield for Manchester United, and he keeps winning them games. Yeah. 
What is he? Who is he? I don't know. <laughs> I don't think anyone. I don't think anyone knows. I think. I think he, the one thing is he he played more advanced when he was younger. Right. I think in, in his like in his academy days, this is what he was. But I think to get a, to get an opening in the team, he had to play a little bit deeper. And for all the world, that's what you thought he would be. You thought he would be the destroyer rather than the kind of creator or the finisher uh, throughout his career. And here he is with 15 goals in in, uh, in all competitions this season. Seven of which came for uh, for Scotland. So. Yeah, listen, this is your chance, mate. We you know, sometimes uh, you have to crowbar it in, but no, this is <laughs> this is your moment. Because also, you know, it's fascinating to think back to that career. And he also played brilliantly in the right side of a three-man defence for Scotland as well, didn't he? But is he a jack of all trades, or can he now become something? Is kind of what I'm getting at. Age 27, or will he be forever be the kind of 12th man just filling in gaps everywhere? Can he be? So really, you're asking, can he become a kind of a number ten or like a box crashing midfielder, or actually in the part Premier of for Manchester Man United's, United's, you know, a three-man no. midfield in for Manchester? United. I don't think so. I think he's like, he's not even like Darren Fletcher. Darren Fletcher kind of there was a period where he did become that, and there was like almost moments the the periods where he was when he was absent with injury or or illness, or whatever. Everyone realised how good he was. But there's there are some parallels in that. It's like he always got in the team despite despite everyone else really wanting someone else in the team. And I think that's what Scott McTominay will be while he's at Manchester United. But, look, he, he could have left and he decided to, to stay and fight and and, and was determined to, to contribute and, and make a name for himself at Manchester United and he's doing that. So he deserves great credit, but I think the answer is no. I think, he, he, again, it's like there will always be some, there will always be a desire to have Scott McTominay as an, as an extra Mm. Rather than the man that you're relying upon, in but the there's field. nothing wrong with that, though. You, no, that means you may still, like you might still score 15 goals and play 25 games a season, whatever. It's, he still could have a really positive impact for Manchester United, but the answer's still no. Mm. Do we think this is a case of Eric Ten Hag deserving a bit of praise? Continuing our theme from last week, compliments for Manchester United, getting something out of a player, identifying what he can bring to the team, moving him up the field. Alison, yes, but I mean. I think it has to be pretty thick not to see that McTominay is very useful if you're a Man United manager. What I mean, what you say that, but I think for a while he actually embodied the things that they lacked. You know, bloody hell, they're relying on Scott McTominay. And, you know, there are many a night when he would play in a deeper role and would maybe make yeah, a mistake, yeah, and, and he would be the embodiment of this team isn't good enough. Yes, and and Ten Hag must be doing something right to keep McTominay willing and able to have cameo. Parts. But in, in the match report in the game today, which Henry Winter writes, he says he's not good enough to start for United. Certainly not in midfield where Kobe Manu and Casemiro build a partnership or nor further forward where he's got his youngsters now. But that is, I mean, that's presumably why we're discussing this, Tom, because it seems to have become uh, a fact, a fait accompli that Scott McTominay isn't good enough to start for United. And I I would I wouldn't say it's that definitive at all. Because he has all these qualities and is so versatile and seems to really care for the team and have an you know an affinity with the fans and so on. I would say mm, I would find a way to play him. And I think it's a bit mean that some youngster comes through, Manu comes through in midfield and suddenly he's the star. I've seen him have a really rubbish game, actually. I've seen him make mistakes. I think McTominay's reliable, not doesn't make mistakes, has the wisdom of his 27 years. I wouldn't say it's definitive that he can't start for United. I think that's a slightly weird path that the club have gone down. It depends, and, and pundits do. It depends on like the, the team and the way... And the manager and the way they they play, like you could actually draw some parallels too with John McGinn for Aston Villa. He's not really, you know, your archetypal number ten, but he kind of plays in that role for Villa, and he's a bustler and he's like, you know, he, he is creative, but not like in the sort of traditional sense. And he does score goals, but you know, he's you can not talk gonna... about some non-Scottish players as well. No, but no, yeah. <laughs> there are some parallels, but like Aston Villa are still a kind of. You know, a team trying to break into the elite. They're not a member of the elite, and that's why you know it's Manchester United. It's Fernandez is normally playing number ten, mm. and if it's not Fernandez, then it'll be someone of that ilk, and you know who is like, you know, hugely skillful and talented and creative. And McTominay is not that, but he's effective. 
I guess I, part part of the reason for my fascination with him as a topic is that in modern football we have these so almost defined roles in the modern game as much as we shun you know there's no formation it's all free form we do have oh he's a six he's an eight he's a yeah. ten etc and it kind of comes back to, you know you highlighted Darren Fletcher and that's interesting Alex Ferguson's Manchester United squads had lots of these type of players John O'Shea for example players who were just quite good footballers who could do lots of different jobs at lots of different times for lots of different scenarios but I was kind of there aren't that many Scott McTominays that I can think of who do that to a kind of maybe a maximum eight out of ten level ever you know, it's slightly fascinating in this modern game to me, Tom. What do you think? Well, I wonder if there's a stylistic thing as well. Because would Darren Fletcher, for example, play in this Eric Ten Hag team in this era of football? You know, because it's almost like goalkeepers, where you know, you, you, we sort of a whole batch of very good goalkeepers basically got phased out in the last ten years because they couldn't kick the ball about with their feet. Yeah. And you sort of think in midfield now, they're under so much pressure, and it goes back to what we are saying at Brighton with Gilmore, you know, getting the ball basically with someone right behind you. Yeah. All these teams, like United, are playing under Ten Hag with slightly more kind of progressive, demanding managers about their possession, <clears throat> excuse me, are basically asking their midfielders to be very comfortable on the ball in very tight areas. And McTominay might be a very effective player in a West Ham team, for example. But there are a lot of midfielders, I think, now in the Premier League who are suddenly, you know, 27, 28, they grew up basically playing in, in a system of 4-2-3-1 where they didn't have to get the ball in these kind of tight areas and play kind of, you know, Pep Guardiola football. And they're a bit like, I haven't got that aspect to my game and you're asking me to do it and I can't. And probably Ten Hag can see that and he thinks, OK, let's get him away from the defence. Let's get him away from that area where he's going to lose the ball and he can actually affect the game, you know. And there are other ones I can think of. Calvin Phillips is a bit like this. Uh, Hoiberg at Spurs is like this. You know, they're good players, but they can't do what their coaches are asking them to do. They can't do what this kind of modern era of, of pressing football requires. And so you've yeah. almost got this kind of batch of decent central midfielders who are kind of becoming extinct. You know? That's a really, really good point. And someone you would see actually who that change has worked in a positive effect for is Ross Barkley. Because he wasn't really a number ten, and that he, you know, he, he didn't always come up with the numbers, and he didn't always, you know, have the end product. He'd, some of that was to do with his, you know, taking a bad move to Chelsea or whatever. But he, he looks like, and he played deeper as a as a kid, and then he broke his leg, and he said to, to kind of, he, he was a bit, he was a bit wary about going into tackles and stuff, and then also to get into the team, you know, David Moyes, you're going to put someone a bit more advanced rather than a, a kind of a defensive role in midfield. Now he's playing deeper. He's got all those attributes, so it's kind of working out working it better for him but I agree there's not really a defined role for him and that's kind of also why like there's some sort of comments about calling him Mick Fellaini on, on, on Twitter and stuff because it's like Which it feels like a, a mean, player right? it feels like a player and a, playing a role that's from like a decade ago which is done in a mean way but actually Maron Fellaini was a brilliantly effective footballer in Absolutely. the Premier I mean one of the beauties of hosting this podcast listeners and also being part of the editing team is I get most of my ideas for commission so Tom, Gregor you can decide who's going to write the piece about all these modern midfielders that you've just stumbled upon um, <laughs> Manchester United in general then it's another win and another win where people go bloomin' heck you're beating Aston Villa away it's another step in the right direction for Eric Ten Hag Alisson but in reality the performance bit lucky to win do we think I'm getting deja vu I mean this was last season wasn't it mm. they were they were grabbing wins that they didn't I hate the word deserve but if you if you take the match as a whole chances created attractive football played Aston Villa you'd say if they'd won that no one would argue again about it being unfair in any way <clears throat> excuse me but um this is this is exactly what happened to United last season they they managed to get a Champions League spot whilst being talked about as if they were hovering around seventeenth or eighteenth. It was a did there was a disconnect. But there is an improvement, isn't there? I would say on that on that extreme um, that you've outlined there. I think the, the the gap between those two things that you've just outlined has narrowed. So, for example, they might finish fifth or sixth whilst occasionally looking like a team who should finish tenth. Oh, that's, in that's, in that's, recent <laughs> in more recent history, yes, they they seem to have come through a crisis. And they're showing a lot of unity, which we've already discussed on the podcast. I see no reason to go there again. We can't, we can't, we can't have a let's, <laughs> says let's, the, says the Liverpool <laughs> let's praise Ten Hag slot every week, can we? That's ridiculous. Just a couple of weeks, it's been nice after slagging him <laughs> off. Um, Aston Villa then, Unai Emery, it's been a bit of a difficult patch, but they're still in and amongst the European places. Is it bad luck? Are they, you know, is it the fatigue? Is it that European campaign kicking in? Gregor? I think John McGinn again let's talk about another Scotsman again. <laughs> yeah. I think he summed up very well afterwards he was saying that like we've had a dip in results and performances in recent week but weeks but this one 
was not a dip in their performance levels he, he thought on another another day they could have won it and I think he was right um, I also enjoyed his thing about like saying as captain it's about keeping everyone together but it's, it's easier when you can't understand half the other lads in the changing room <laughs> uh, and I think Emery, Emery thinks the same as well they they had a lot of really good chances and Ollie Watkins had an off day in front of goal which you can't really afford to have too often Um so I don't think there's anything to panic about for Villa. Whatsoever. And it was a good bounce back from what was a very disappointing performance against Chelsea. Because you know Villa fans, they want some. They're not going to not going to win the title. They'd like a bit of glory, but it's silverware. And they, they thought they were good enough to win the FA Cup. And a good response to going behind. You know, to what was you know, Maguire was bullying. Uh, I think it was was it Kamara in midfield. Glad yeah. you finally come back on board with the Harry he was, Maguire. He was bullying him every single set piece and like knocking them down. So. To come back from that, and it was a really good response, and that, and, and they could have won the game. I, I don't think there's anything to worry about for Villa. If we're settling in for a three-horse title race, then fourth place: Tottenham, Aston Villa, between the two of them, or Manchester United going to sneak in as Gregor Robertson? You actually predicted many months ago, Alison. Oh, it's a bad day for football if Man United finish above Spurs. Isn't it? <laughs> but will it happen though? <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, will it happen? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it could happen, couldn't it? Because the world's not fair. Well, it's not right, is it? It's I not need to right. stop asking you about it's Manchester not, United, don't I? Moving right. on, Tom. All not, who's going right. to finish fourth? A team that is largely a club, an institution that's largely dysfunctional and trying to find its way with semi-new owners and having underperformed for outlay and just been hugely disappointing. Should finish above a team that is being brave and entertaining everybody even people who don't like Spurs have to admit they're fun yeah doesn't answer my question as to who's going to finish fourth Tom Olnock might I don't think they will no I, I mean the gap is is still there what is it six points seven points now yeah six six, 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 to, Spurs. six I, to Spurs do you feel like Tottenham have kind of been through their rocky patch because that's the other thing isn't it in these seasons you know your peaks and troughs have they kind of gone through their rocky patch I think so yeah. back? They've, got, they've got the players back now I think you know Spurs are, are far from perfect and you know, they concede a lot of goals but I just think they've got a bit more momentum, fluency. Um, I think they're a better team than United. You know, I really do. I mean, United delivered, and you know, it's United and better than Villa overall. Um, yes, and I think Villa have got more distractions. Spurs have got nothing, nothing else apart from the league now. You know, they're going to play about a forty-game season. Spurs, you know, Villa, I think, could easily go deep in Europe with Emery, and, and that could make a difference as well. Gregor, Mister Predictions, you love it. Who's going to finish fourth? Yeah, I think for those, I think if Spurs keep keep the two most important players fit now then they will excellent but fifth could be enough right I mean we th- you know they're saying I think 80% yeah. chance at the moment that fifth is going to be enough for Champions League so they could all get in very true well speaking of predictions I gave Arsenal the reverse jinx the other week when I said they were going to get battered by Liverpool and they now look like they're going to win the title but speaking of traditional jinxes Gregor Luton Town <laughs> gave them the big hype in the last few shows then you went and interviewed their star striker Adebayo mm. and they promptly got walloped by Sheffield United but first <laughs> before we get onto that game tell us about meeting um, Elijah Adebayo he's a lovely fella he's you know really really smart and articulate and uh, had a great journey and I think he appreciates the journey he's had as well and uh, you know he was on he spent I think he joined Fulham at 8 until he was and he was there until he's 21 so he's a huge part of his life uh, at one club without making a first team appearance went on loan to Bognor Regis Slough Town uh, Cheltenham Swindon Stevenage uh, and then permanently to Walsall. So it was three years ago, last month, he was still playing in League Two for for Walsall. And then he joined, and he was really, really kind of clear about what it is that's making the kind of special energy at Luton. Is that you know, yes, Luton have been on a, a remarkable journey, and they've had players who've been on that a lot of that journey, but also the guys who've joined them, sort of at various stages in League One and in the Championship, they've all had the similar similar sort of journeys. They're kind of you know they've had to fight to even to even get the chance at Luton, uh, and he's saying he said he thinks that that kind of brings a sort of special unity to the place. And yeah, of course, then they got pumped the next day. So <laughs> that was ideal. But, uh, you said he seemed like a very bright lad as well. Yeah, he he just I don't know really articulate and and seemed very well brought up and and he was you know he said some nice things about about his mum and what what she kind of had to do for him when they were young and then he moved to, moved to. Into digs with a family in near Fulham, changed school when he was fourteen and stuff, 
and he was with his family, lived with his family for five years, and he's godfather to their fourth child. Uh, just a really nice guy, and someone who I think everyone would be really pleased to see. There's so many players like this in Luton, at Luton, who have have this story, similar kind of story, and and he's another one, and he's been in great form up until the weekend. Why did he say he didn't make it at Fulham? What was the the reason he felt that they? Well, he actually, interestingly too, he he, he was moved to centre half when he was 14, and he spent so he spent about three years at centre centre half, and then uh, Peter Grant, once of Celtic, uh, was his was his coach, I think, in the under 21s or 23s, and. They asked him the question when he was about to move up to that age group, right, what do you want to be? And he said, I want to be a striker. And so that's when they said, right, go out, go on loan. He went to Slowtown and Bognor Regis and stuff. Uh, and he said there was one game where Fulham had no no fit strikers. And he thought, right, so I may, you know, I should get on the bench or whatever. And he wasn't. And he thought, right, that's it. And he, so he, from that point, he realised, I need to go and do this somewhere else. But while I'm doing this, you know, I need to show that I'm, I'm I'm good enough to play at a higher level, but I need to show that at a lower level. And a lot of that's about getting back to the same sort of environment where, you know, it makes it easier for you to excel. It's not easy to go. He said he went his first game at, at Slough Town. He didn't remember it for the for the hat trick. He remembered it for turning up and not having brought a drink, and no one provided drinks for him. So he's like he was thirsty at this game. <laughs> As he said, that was you know that was a real eye opener for him. Uh, but yeah, he had to work really hard to. To get this opportunity, don't provide drinks for this podcast either. Greg I know. Well, well I, really poor. I've offered to provide the coffees, but no one takes me up on it. <laughs> Blimey, heck, Alison Rudd's in a bad mood again. <laughs> Quick, moving on. <laughs> moving on. She's going to swear at me in a minute. Um, it sounds like uh, you were a bit very fond of him and massaged his ego sufficiently on Friday <laughs> afternoon. That meant he took his eye off the ball and Sheffield United waltzed in and got the win. And I wanted to talk about an item in Tony Cascarino's um, column talking about um, Chris Wilder. He says, "I know Chris Wilder a bit." which is a bit of an understatement because he knows him very well, yes. doesn't he, Alice? Um, and one thing I can guarantee is that Sheffield United are going to chase wins in every game from now on to the end of the season. It means they may be on the end of some hidings, but Chris will never be a manager who lets them sit in for a point. They're going to be the great entertainers, having been the kind of, you know, the whipping boys all season, Alison. Yeah, well, um, why not? Because that's how they were successful the first time around in the Premier League under Chris Wilder. They were brave. You know, they played a strange system where the centre-backs became wing-backs and you never knew where anyone was going to be on the pitch and they were fearless and Tony Cascarino is spot on I mean what is the point there's no there is literally no point now in wanting a point because it's not going to save you the only way and it's a it's a long shot the only way they could possibly avoid relegation is to grab wins that are unlikely but not impossible if you are brave enough they don't they don't really have on paper the players to do it but as they showed against Luton if you just go for it now and again it'll come off and it's you know mathematically it makes more sense doesn't it to grab three points than have a couple of draws so certainly does that's how my dad always used to make feel better about Lincoln getting beat he said if we win next week it's more points than two (laughs) from the bottom of the Premier League to the top of the Bundesliga and we finish with poor old Harry Kane might not win another title. You God. say that, but you're smiling, Tom. God, no, but it's because I'm a mean editor and I, and I like these <laughs> narratives that get us talking. Pesky editors. Um, James Gearbrand, if Liverpool had any doubts about Xabi Alonso, they shouldn't now. Cold, methodical Spaniard is very different to Jurgen Klopp, but Bayer Leverkusen's resounding 3-0 victory over Harry Kane's Bayern Munich showed he could be the sport's next great coach. Tom and Allman, agree? Uh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, I guess the question for him is is what is the right next move and, and what is the right timing and I, I suspect if wait Bayer, for a bigger club than Liverpool for me I, think. <laughs> <laughs> I suspect if Bayer Leverkusen beat Bayern Munich to the title then that is a, a good way to go out you know um, and they played brilliantly like, they deserved it you know they've really deserved it um, I mean Jabby Lonzo's got everything right and I think in a way Liverpool would be smart to go now before before other teams do, because they're mm. going to be two or three teams. Right Maybe Bayern Munich. Maybe Bayern Munich. Yeah. Real Madrid. Yeah, that'd know, be classic Bayern Munich, wouldn't it? Just <laughs> nick the bloke who always beats them to something. Yeah. And for Harry Kane, yeah. I mean, he must be really cursing his luck, right? I mean, you know, the, the one year when he thought he'd be sort of guaranteed a title. But to be fair to, to, to Kane, he can't do any more. You know, he scored about mm. 25 goals in about 
10 games, isn't he? So, I mean, it's nothing on him, in my opinion. I mean, or is it? Would... Is he just a bad luck child, <laughs> ultimately? Goodness me. Yeah, I mean, there's still the Champions League, you know. I mean, there is still the league. You know, it's not gone for Bayern. Um, but I think they'll, they'll be there in the Champions League as well. And ultimately, you know, it is, of course, about winning trophies for Kane. It is, but I think it's also about being there, you know, and this is the thing about Tottenham is that they were never kind of in that race. Okay, they got to the Champions League final, fine. But in general, Kane wants to kind of be in those in those races where where a trophy is possible. And you can't say that's not the case now. Some of the patterns of playing stuff from Leverkusen are incredible to watch. It's like, you know, you see kind of analysis where like they highlight three players in a triangle and like join the join the triangle up. And, see, and watch them move around the pitch. It's almost like watching that in real life. Some some of the times they're kind of like overloads on the right hand side, and players just playing in little triangles, but progressing up the pitch with it. It's like Can it make you excited about the idea of Alonso coming to the Premier League. Yeah, and just, and as James also kind of highlighted in his piece, it's like there seems to be a sort of flex a degree of flexibility to it as well. They they ceded a lot of possession in this game, whereas clearly normally they don't do that. They had seventy nine percent of the ball. Some of that will be game state, but. They, they went with a game plan, and as James outlined, it sort of it was different. It was surprising. Even even the, the team he named was surprising. Nathan Taylor, who's really stepped up in recent weeks, he scored. Uh, I think he scored three and three before this game, and he started to make an impact in the team. Who you know he was big in in the championship for Burnley last season, um, before earning a move from Southampton. So. Yeah, he sprung a few surprises and it looked like he outthought Tuchel, which is pretty exciting. Alison Rudd, it's been a difficult show for you. <laughs> the Jilly Cooper snub at the start, then me making you talk about Manchester United. I'll let you have the final word. Your plea for Xabi Alonso well, to the Liverpool board. Make him the offer now. It's looking good, isn't it? I mean, what what struck me in uh, what people have written and James Gearbrandt in particular is that they make the point he's very different to Klopp, and I think that's a really good thing. You, you don't want to come, you don't want to succeed Klopp and be Klopp light. You don't want to be a version of Klopp. He's nothing like Klopp at all. He's um, quieter, not very demonstrative, not terribly emotional, and he's more analytical. He's unlikely to hold, be the sort of chap where every press conference is every word is just worth reporting goes off on tangent he's not going to do that he's going to be a serious quiet personality and I think the only way you can because I, if I were him I'd be thinking yeah I'd love to manage Liverpool I don't think I want to go straight after Klopp but for him it might just work simply because it, he is so different that the, the, com, the comparisons will stop the squad as well is maybe ripe for a manager like him with a lot of young players coming through as well well if, if if he can continue that golden touch where he can bring through players that no one's really expecting too much of and make them coagulate into something that can beat Bayern Munich so easily, then yes. then And I think he would enjoy working with um, Liverpool's excellent academy as well. So this it's, 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 easing, it's easing that moment when it's going to happen. Goodbye, Klopp. But it, I mean, how fortunate that he seems to be in pole position. Almost, it's good. Almost got the smile back on your face, <laughs> Alison Rudd. What a huge relief. Tom Ulner, Alison Rudd and Gregor Robertson, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you too for listening. We'll be back on Thursday with Johnny Northcroft and we'll make sure to ask him all about Jilly Cooper. Listener.